Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu slash LCSI. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, MindShift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome to MindShift, the podcast about the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Ki Sung. Today, we're talking about language learning. I am the eldest child of two immigrants from Hong Kong who met in Texas. Cantonese is my first language. Every day in school, a therapist pulls me out of class. She walks from classroom to classroom, collecting all the ESL students. We follow her down the hall to a windowless room where we learn English copying her sounds and mouth shapes. Melissa Hung is a Bay Area journalist. She's reading excerpts from her piece, Towards Chinatown, where she explores language, identity, and loss. One time, we gather around a table to play Candyland. There are five of us, but in Candyland, there are only four plastic gingerbread men. Blue, red, green, yellow. Lam, Hung, Luk, Wong. I am not quick enough. I do not get a gingerbread man. Instead, the therapist hands me a bottle of whiteout. I don't yet know what irony is. I'm embarrassed about being the whiteout bottle. Even among the kids who are different, I feel singled out. The point of the program is to make us English proficient. There is never any discussion about bilingualism, how to learn and hold two languages equally at once. Language shapes the way we learn how we communicate and move through the world. It shapes our identity. Today, I have enough Cantonese to get by. I can hand over the right amount of cash and a grocery or give the time to a stranger. I understand most of what's said to me, but I can't follow a news broadcast, can't talk about politics or art. What has been lost because Cantonese stopped making pathways in my brain as I was still growing? I fear that some fundamental part of me has been displaced that my inability to speak fluently renders me incomplete. The feelings Melissa describes aren't unique. A lot of people have complicated feelings about their identity and how well they speak the language of their families. Producer Kiana Mogadam has been exploring these ideas for a mind shift. Hi, Kiana. Hey, Ki. So today, we're talking about language in and outside of the classroom, and specifically the discussion around heritage language learning. Will you explain this term, heritage language, for us, Kiana? Yes. A heritage language is one that you have some kind of family or personal connection to. This could mean the language you communicated in at home, or maybe it's a language you never learned, but it's the mother tongue of your parents or your relatives. Whatever your fluency You've got this personal connection to the language through your family or background. 
So learning a heritage language is a little different than learning just any foreign language, right? Yep, it's a different relationship to the language, and therefore it can be a pretty different learning process. There are lots of people trying to learn the heritage languages as adults right now, but today we're going to focus on young people learning English as their second language while also trying to hang on to their heritage language. As we heard from Melissa, that can be really hard in an English-dominant environment, and it's also a really personal process for many people. We're going to hear from people about their experiences learning, teaching, and advocating for heritage language learning. All that coming up right after this break. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. All over the country... We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening... Because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Bilingual programs and immersion schools are all the rage now, but it hasn't always been that way. In the 1980s and 90s here in California, there were plenty of people arguing that bilingual education was a threat to English. Learning English quickly is key to assimilating in the U.S. Bilingual education doesn't work now. It's never worked in the past. Voters even passed a statewide proposition that slashed bilingual programs in the state. If Proposition 227 passes, the state's bilingual education programs will end. Bilingual education in California will be banned. English only, the rule. And instead shift over to a system which ensures the children are taught English as quickly as possible once they begin public school. A lot has changed since then. First, there's research to show that being bilingual makes you smarter. Speaking more than one language actually improves cognition and social skills. It can even help fight off dementia or Alzheimer's as you get older. And we know from these studies that being fluent in one language also makes it a lot easier to learn another. You know what else has changed? how people value the ability to speak more than one language. But access to bilingual education is often a question of politics, who's in power, and the dominant social values. That part continues to be in flux. My parents both speak about five other languages in addition to their mother tongue, Malayalam. This is Supriya Lopez-Palai. She lives in Oakland, California. Coming to the United States, like many of their generation, my father said, we weren't planning to stay. We were going to go back. So Priya's family is from Kerala, in southern India. Her parents came to the States in the 1960s, and she was born and raised in Chicago. She's a writer and a social justice organizer. And so what he really believed in, and what my mother believed in as well, was that English was going to be the language of the future, that their children needed to ground in that language to have a rightful place in this country. And um, they made that choice to speak to us in our mother tongue, Malayalam, but asked for us to speak back to them in English. Supriya says her family raised her with a lot of pride around her heritage, but she still remembers feeling out of place. The teacher was going around and having us read sentences, and I had an accent, and I didn't realize that I had this accent. 
And I'll never forget it. I read, the chicken is in the oven. And she started laughing and the kids started laughing. And I kept repeating it. And I didn't know that that's not how it was pronounced. She felt like an outsider at school. And I remember then feeling like, oh, some shame around language and like pronunciations. Studies show when students feel they belong in a school community or a classroom, it makes for more engaged learning. Feeling seen, safe, and valued are catalysts for participation and academic risk-taking. For Supriya, growing up speaking a stilted version of Malayalam made it difficult to communicate with family back in India. Even as a teenager, I used to say, you know, I have such regret that we decided to do it that way because um, we don't have mastery of our tongue. Supriya's story is a common one. Parents often make English the priority out of a sense of survival. And that's not unfounded. Forcing people to speak English has been a way colonizers all over the world showed dominance and created hierarchies. Think of mid-19th century America, when the government and Christian missionaries established American Indian boarding schools. They forced students to give up all aspects of their culture and identity, dress, religious practices, even their names. They were forced to speak English and punished for speaking their own languages. I more and more think about assimilation as an act of violence. You know, this is not a choice that simply individuals choose into for just their children. This is a choice of protection for their future generations in this country to blend in so that they are not harmed, um, blend in so that they have a chance for not just thriving, but actually surviving in this country. And that is something I think they bring over from a colonial legacy. Even as bilingualism has become more accepted, there have been moments of resistance. It's often political. For example, in reaction to World War I, American schools banned all German language instruction, which had been popular until then. Or more recently, in the 1990s, California banned teaching anything but English in schools, a reaction to more Spanish-speaking immigrants moving to the state. Language is more than just the words. It is like the cut of the tongue the fissure from our past, the violence of our culture, really. And it's part of a more dominant structure, a more normative structure that embraces English as the, as the dominant language. We can't forget that brutal history when we talk about how we approach teaching English as a second language now. There's an inherent tension between asking people to assimilate into American culture through English and hold on to their mother tongue. So it's kind of an act for me of self-determination, an act of reclaiming to learn language again and to preserve that. Sapria's experiences show us how important language is to individual identity and sense of self. But it can also be an incredible teaching tool. That brings us to the second part of our story, why embracing languages beyond English in the classroom can be transformative for students. We know the way language is acquired. David Bowles is an author and a professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. We know that when you become literate in your first language, it is easier for you to become literate in your second language. And your literacy will be stronger as a result. 
He teaches the next generation of educators in a part of the country where many students speak Spanish at home. These pre-service teachers are eager to give back to their communities, and David urges them to think about how to preserve heritage languages in their classrooms. He says it's important for student success. And we know this from decades and decades of research into bilingual education, and yet the research is ignored because it isn't Uh, It isn't expedient, frankly. David says research on English language learning is clear. It works best if students continue to learn their heritage language alongside English, so they can lean on their first language as they learn the second one. David says it's crucial new teachers understand this principle. I think that schools ought to be preserving heritage language and that they ought to be using students' home language as the the primary vehicle for literacy instruction in those early years. But it can be an uphill battle, even when the teachers in training are themselves Latino or Spanish-speaking. These students, these pre-service teachers, don't see heritage languages as academic tools, as viable means of expression. Many of his students are English majors and are so used to reading literature in English they often don't think of their home language as worthy of academic study. A lot of this is just being done at an unconscious level and bit by bit as public education chips away at any kind of cultural, culturally specific knowledge and language they have, they end up adopting these perspectives. So it's it's a really complex thing and it's something that you can't blame. I don't, I, I don't, ever blame the students, especially not the Latinx students in my classroom who are grappling with things that have been done to them and done to their families. But it's certainly something that they need to have their eyes open to. In addition to changing attitudes about language, David tries to get his students to ask questions about the books they teach, hoping they see the value of reading books by authors with a diverse set of perspectives and backgrounds, including literature written by Latino authors. Use those texts in ways that center students and that create lifelong readers and writers and critical thinkers, not English majors, not experts in canonical Western literature. For example, if they plan to read the Odyssey, bring in another book to read alongside it. Maybe Summer of the Mariposas by Guadalupe Garcia Macal. Which is a middle grade slash young adult kind of retooling of the Odyssey with like five Mexican-American sisters who go on an Odyssey of their own. Reading a text with a different perspective, in conversation with the original book, can deepen students' understanding of both texts. And it helps kids see their heritage and identity in the curriculum. When students are reading something that is meaningful to them, that matters to them, that that they're excited about, they are usually animated and they're usually bringing in things from their own lives. If you're doing something that matters to kids, kids will respond If you're a teacher looking for a place to get started, David recommends checking out a website called Disrupt Text, where educators and librarians have put together teaching guides and resources. So if you're teaching To Kill a Mockingbird, commonly criticized for its white savior perspective, pair it with another book. All American Boys, for example, by Jason Reynolds and Brendan Kelly, or The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, which when you hold it in conversation with To Kill a Mockingbird, brings out all kinds of really interesting things about the white gaze and will help people to interrogate assumptions that are being made by people into Killing Mockingbird. It's really about including the contributions of more people in the curriculum so that our classrooms, with a very diverse set of kids, 
have examples of powerful thinkers from all over the world. It's one of the biggest barriers, that notion that there is quality and quality is Western thought and Western literature and that all the rest of it is interesting and kind of cool for a little spice and flair, but it's not the real important stuff. That's the stuff that started with the Greeks and that's been carried forward through European democracy into the present. That you know, that entire line of thinking is fallacious and has to be abandoned. David has found that in southern Texas, his emphasis on valuing heritage languages and culture as a way to foster a sense of belonging and as a way to improve English learning doesn't resonate with everyone. You know, principals who are like, well, I learned English in a sink or some kind of way, and I, it worked just fine for me. And, and I would always tell them, what people like you don't realize is that if you look back over your shoulders, you'll see all the drowning people behind you who were not able to swim, and they did sink. David doesn't want anyone to get left behind. And right now, they are. The 2017 American Community Survey shows more than 8% of Latino youth in the U.S. drop out of school as compared to an overall dropout rate of about 5.5%. And it's in part due to a lack of language resources for students and their families. So David makes sure his pre-service teachers leave his program with two crucial ideas. Their future students should be able to retain their heritage language as much as possible and their, their cultural rootedness and their identity should be celebrated in the classroom. Valuing students' language and culture in the classroom sounds straightforward, but it can also be a challenge for teachers to meaningfully celebrate all their students. I like to read in Spanish because that's how we talk in, in my family. We talk in Spanish. It takes careful thought, and it helps if the district offers structures to support the work. Here, California students describe their experience learning in bilingual environments. Language has brought me closer together with my family, como especialmente con la familia de mi papá que vive en Jalisco, México. We can communicate with others, we can help others, and we can make other people's lives better um, by just having this one special trait, which is being bilingual. Walk down the street in San Francisco and you could hear many languages being spoken. One census report counted more than 100 different languages, making it the fifth most linguistically diverse city in the country. The city's public schools reflect some of that diversity with a variety of language pathways, a sequence of language classes starting in elementary school and going through high school. San Francisco prides itself on world language pathways. Laura Kiswani is a Palestinian-American educator and author. There's over a dozen languages that they offered at the time, and Arabic and Vietnamese were two languages that were not being offered, despite the growing population of Arab and Vietnamese students in the city of San Francisco. Laura attended San Francisco public schools at a time when she says there were few other Arabic-speaking students. She felt stereotyped and left out almost all the time, even told that Palestine didn't exist when people asked where she was from. But on the weekends, when she attended Arabic class, it was a different feeling. You know, it was empowering in that because I had another space, an alternative space where I was, you know, taught to be proud of who I was, my full self, taught to be proud of my language and culture and history. That class profoundly influenced her thinking about the value of language to create belonging and community. 
and not just as classes on the weekend or as an alternative space, but within U.S. public schools. Nalara is the director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, known simply as AROC. My name is Noor Bohassoun, and I immigrated here from Syria in 2012. Noor is a youth coordinator at AROC. The Arabic language campaign was really a push by Arab parents, Arab students, and the community at large in Iraq to have Arabic be implemented in public schools. And it came out of a need for parents to feel included in the public school system and that they can be part of decision-making processes. The group reached out to students involved with the Vietnamese Youth Development Center to push for two new language programs. Parents and teachers and community and allies showed up. We packed the Board of Education room. It was a really empowering moment. And in 2014, the school board passed a resolution to create Arabic and Vietnamese language pathways. We demonstrated our power as an Arab community in the city of San Francisco and also um, enabled our families to work alongside other communities like the Vietnamese community to see their shared struggles and experiences. Lara remembers the victory proudly. It was a really beautiful sort of moment of both solidarity, but also community power. So she was caught off guard when the very next day, the pushback began. Islamophobic and other right-wing organizations attempted to stop it being moved forward with the Board of Education and actually attempted to go against this very democratic process. And then there was an attempt to rescind the resolution altogether. The majority of resistance came from the Jewish Community Relations Council, who took issues with some of AROC's other activism work around Islamophobia and advocating for Palestinian rights. We were targeted pretty brutally, and this continued on through the Trump administration. So at a time when we were already facing increased Islamophobic attacks in this country, we saw that there was a sort of intersection of that and the ongoing assault on our work in the city of San Francisco. There was no comparable pushback against other language programs in San Francisco. Petitions circulated. It was ugly. I didn't expect, and a lot of us at the Arab Youth didn't think that something as simple as having Arabic language at school would be controversial. I remember that moment of being attacked and facing these backlashes made me actually more um, political and helped with my political development. It took years, but eventually the district went ahead with the new Arabic and Vietnamese language programs. Arabic is now taught at three San Francisco schools, in elementary, middle, and high school. Lara and Noor are part of a long line of activists stretching back through American history. They fight to retain the right to learn and speak their heritage languages alongside English. For Lara, that fight is personal, yes but it's also about building a different kind of world. Language is a big part of people's worldview, of people's identities, of people's sense of belonging, and offering people access to various languages to be able to communicate in the world in more ways can only bring about more connection. As the backlash to the Arabic language program in San Francisco shows, there's activism on both sides of this issue. Policies towards language learning swing between extremes, English only to dozens of language pathways, and they shift as our culture changes and evolves.
So, Kiana, what are you taking away from all your reporting on learning heritage languages? I've talked to a number of people who are trying to learn their heritage language as adults. They're working really hard to keep their family language alive, to connect to their relatives across the world, or to learn the language of a lost parent. And it just made me wonder what would be different if they'd been able to learn their heritage language in school. That really resonates with me as someone who was born in Korea, and I speak some Korean, but really not as much as I'd like. And I spent a lot of my adult years wondering what would have been like if my school had a program for it. Right. Obviously, every public school can't teach programs in every language, at least not yet. But more awareness of how important language is to students and their families could go a really long way to create the sense of belonging at school. Belonging that we know makes a huge difference for learning and connection. And of course, if the students are trying to learn English, their heritage language can help. Thanks so much for bringing us the stories and wisdom of all these folks, Kiana. It was my pleasure. I learned a lot along the way, and it wouldn't have been possible without all the people you heard in this episode. That's Melissa Hung. Sapria Lopez Palai, David Bowles, Lara Kiswani, and Norba Hasun. Extra thank you to Fox Nakai, Nathan Gong, Renee Kutsi, Dakota Kim, Professor Jung Kim, and to Sita Bamak for spreading the word. This episode of Mindshift was produced by me, Kiana Mokadam. And me, Ki Sung. Katrina Schwartz is our editor, Seth Samuel is our sound designer, Jen Chian is our head of podcasts, and Holly Kernan is KQD's chief content officer. If you love MindShift and enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. We really appreciate it. And if you want to share your thoughts on this episode, you can find us on Twitter at MindShiftKQED, where you can tell us about your experience with heritage languages. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.